1: funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast.
2: Listener supported WNYC Studios.
3: Wait, you're listening. Okay. All right.
2: Right. <coughs> You're listening, listening to
0: Radio Lab. Lab.
2: Radio Lab from
1: WNYC. C.
4: C? Yep. Okay, so Latif.
1: Yes. Hello.
4: <laughs> Happy New Year.
1: Happy New Year to you. Uh,
4: we are now just a few days into a brand new year, and think about what that means. We have all. Completed a 500 million mile plus lap around the sun, hmm. and and so in honor of completing that journey, I wanted to try something a little different today and take us all on a journey. Okay, we're gonna travel all the way back to the very beginning of all of it, and then we're gonna zip forward. And make pit stops at certain moments in the development of the universe and planet. And to do that, to really understand what's going on scientifically, we are going to turn to poets. Hmm. Do you even like poetry? What are your feelings no, about poetry? No, I, I
1: I generally dislike <laughs> poetry. And um, why? Why? I. I think that like okay, like I I just for circumstances that are too complicated to even go into, I, I I recently just had to read a book of poems and like write about it a little bit. Yeah. And uh I was like, for all I can tell, this is just like an AI random word <laughs> generator. <laughs> uh it does not make me feel anything except stupid. Um, and it's just like I'm like, like wh- what is the point of what we're doing here?
5: <laughs> well, can I offer some uh, assurance and consolation for that? Please. This, by the way, is going to be our lovely guide on this poetry journey. Her
4: name is Maria Popova. She's a writer. You've probably heard of her website. Used to be called Brain Pickings, now The Marginalian. And she curated this journey of poems that we're about to hear. But it turns out she herself has incredibly mixed feelings about poetry.
5: So first I'll say, I personally like maybe 1% of the poetry I read. Mm, Okay. Poetry was not a part of my life for most of my adult life, and I really discounted it. But then she read this T.S. Eliot poem,
4: and she said it disturbed her universe.
5: I saw this way it has of slipping in through the back door of consciousness, past our intellectual judgments, and Hmm. open up this other portal of receptivity. So she started doing this event where
4: she would have poets read poems about science.
5: The universe
4: universe in verse. I've never been to the event myself, but I've listened to the poems over the years, and some of them have really moved me. So today, for this special treat for the new year, I asked Maria to curate a little journey for us. From the very beginning of the universe to a kind of future, a glimpse of the
1: beyond. Mm -hmm. All right.
4: So, okay, let's uh, turn the key in our time travel machine, and we're going to go back to our our first stop. Um, And this is a moment before the Big Bang, the explosion that supposedly many argue made our universe— Theoretical physicists continue to debate what was happening and if the Big Bang happened and what was really there before and blah, blah blah blah. But at the time of the poem there was a belief that what existed before the Big Bang was something called the singularity. Okay, so that's what this poem is going to be about. Before we hear it, Maria, can you just explain as best you can what like what the singularity is?
5: Everything that ever existed could have once been compressed into the single point, single point, you know, this kind of totality shrunken into nothingness that contains everything.
4: A compact little everything. Okay. So the poem that we are going to hear is called The Singularity, and it is written and performed by Marie Howe. Should we just play it? Let's do it. Let's do it. She walks up to
3: the stage and here's what we hear. Let me think. Um, when I was talking with Maria uh, about doing something this evening, I just jotted something in my journal, really, and um, I told her I wanted to read Walt Whitman, and, uh, but, but I just sort of sent this, really, this thing, too, and she said, oh, read that, read that, and I said, I don't know, usually I wait about 10 years before I read anything out loud, and this has been about a week. Anyway... I don't know anything about science. I've tried to read these books. My daughter, however, loves physics. I don't understand that. Um, But I was trying to get her to explain to me what the singularity is. And I was reading Hawkins, of course, and then I was trying to read Astrophysics for People in a Hurry by, by Neil deGrasse Tyson. I I said to her a few weeks ago, I don't believe in the Big Bang. And she said, you don't? I said, no, it's impossible. Who here really believes that we were all, everything that ever is, was once a singularity so dense, it was one thing before it blew up? Raise your hands. See, just like, not that many over there. So here it is, the singularity. Do you sometimes want to wake up to the singularity we once were? So compact, nobody needed a bed, or food, or money. Nobody hiding in the school bathroom, or home alone, pulling open the drawer where the pills are kept. For every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. Remember? There was no nature. No them. No tests to determine if the elephant grieves her calf or if the coral reef feels pain. Trashed oceans don't speak English or Farsi or French. Would that we could wake up to what we were when we were ocean. And before that, when Earth was sky and animal was energy and rock was liquid and stars were space and space was not at all, nothing, before we came to believe humans were so important, before this awful loneliness. Can molecules remember it? What once was before anything happened? Can our molecules remember No I, no we, no one, no was, no verb, no noun yet, but only a tiny, 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 tiny dot brimming with is, 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 Is. all, everything, home. Thank
4: you. That line, can our molecules remember it, is the line that gets me in that one where I'm just like, well, crap. Mm. If the singularity's right,
5: they were in there, right? Or the hint of them, right? I also love how that line echoes that quote from Whitman, which is in the beginning of the poem, that iconic, every atom belonging to me is good, belongs to you. And she says, remember? Mm.
1: This This idea of the singularity, that everything, everywhere, it's both of those e's being capitalized all was in one dot like it's so absurd when you think about it it's like the most absurd possible thing it's just like one of those things it's like oh yeah like anything could have ever happened
5: yeah well i think that's that's the gift of the poem though that 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 it names so plainly what we experience is common sense it, it is no litmus test for reality. That reality is so much larger than our creaturely perceptions and intuitions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. Okay, so stop two. Okay. Here we go. Bye-bye, singularity.
4: Bye-bye, Pfft, big bang. We're zooming forward 9.2 billion years. <laughs> yada,
1: yada, 9.2 billion years. <laughs>
4: <laughs> A planet has formed, We uh, and eventually we'll call it Earth. Woo, woo, woo. Earth keeps lapping the sun. Happy New Year, Happy New Year, Happy New Year. Interestingly, billions of years ago, years were longer,
1: mm-hmm. but
4: the days were shorter.
1: Mm-hmm. Weird. How many days were there I in don't, a year? Don't ask me
4: any follow-up questions. Okay, then we go, boo, doo, doo, More and more life is getting supported. We get plankton and mollusks and snails and sharks and dinosaurs. Um, and then from what we can see in the fossil record, there is an explosion of sorts mm-hmm. all over the planet.
5: What is it? What happened? Um, Flowers appeared and Mm -hmm. carpeted the world so rapidly that Darwin called it an abominable mystery. Abominable flowers. Abominable mystery. (laughs) (laughs) The worst. But, But it's true. It was extremely... Puzzling why it happened so fast on the scale of how other life forms had evolved. And it happened so fast because in some yeah. poetic sense, flowers invented love. What? Or 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 economics, depending on how we look at it. But what happened okay. was that once there were flowers, there were fruit. And once there were fruit, then plants could enlist the help of animals in a kind of trade, you know, sweetness for a lift to my mate. Mm. And it was a kind of love relationship, two biological entities finding each other and something of beauty transpiring between them. Mm-hmm. And the young German marine biologist, Ernst Haeckel, gave that interdependence a name. He called it ecology after the Greek oikos or house. House? That's the root of ecology? House. Huh. Our home, home planet. Now, this was in 1866. And now we're getting to the poem because it was written in 1865. So that's a year before Ernst Haeckel coined the term ecology. But it's really Mm. a poem capturing the notion, the concept of ecology through the lens of a single flower. And it was written by a poet who was a keen and passionate observer of the house of life, Emily Dickinson. Right.
4: And for the universe in verse performance, obviously, Emily Dickinson wasn't available. So you had uh, a musician perform this poem as a song. Um, But before we hear that, can you just actually read the poem in your own voice real quick, Maria?
5: Yes, because in in the song, it's harder to tell the words apart. it's a little harder. Yeah. This one is known as Bloom. Bloom is result to meet a flower and casually glance would cause one scarcely to suspect the minor circumstance, assisting in the bright affair, so intricately done, then offered as a butterfly to the meridian to pack the bud, oppose the worm, obtain its right of due, adjust the heat, elude the wind, escape the prowling bee, great nature not to disappoint, Awaiting her that day, to be a flower, is profound responsibility. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I'm. Just, I don't know. Like, I like the first one. This one, I'm not sure. I really get it. If I'm being honest, like, okay. I, I, I like the idea that it's like from the point of view of the flower, and you're like, it's actually like kind of dramatic. It's, it's like a big. This is as I'm understanding it. Tell me if I'm getting it wrong. Um. No. Great, uh, and maybe there's no getting poems wrong or whatever. But whatever. <laughs> uh, uh, well, also, okay. if
5: you're not confused by Emily Dickinson, you're like not doing it right. Okay, good, <laughs> great. great, great,
1: excellent, excellent. Okay, so so okay, so I get that part. It's like a little action movie about a flower, like having to <laughs> debut, like, and it's like not easy. Um, and then the part at the end: Why is being a flower a profound responsibility? So.
5: I mean, think about the time she lived in. This, these were Victorian times. And in Victorian okay. times, flowers, of course, appeared very much in poetry and art, but there were always these pretty objects. There were objects for mm. admiration. They were not really living things, much less interconnected living things. Mm. And here comes Emily Dickinson and composes this poem that looks at a single flower, and. Everything that goes into making its bloom possible—all the pollinators in the air, and the worms in the soil, the animals competing for resources, aiding each other—the the natural world around it—and the flower suddenly emerges not as an object but as a system. Huh. But but yeah,
4: I mean, I I also think yeah, I agree. If I had encountered this on my own in a book, I would have been like, mmm, mm, mm, mm. but like your preamble and in the context of Emily Dickinson's close looking and kind of fathoming an ecology before the word ecology was even around the the interdependence the interconnection like it it makes me now walk around and see flowers as like not soft and feathery but these like keystone these rock hard strong things mm, I love that like I feel kind of grateful and bad for that <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that new understanding of flowers with us, thanks to poetry, uh, we are going to take a short break, and when we come back, we are going to get a new understanding of invisible matter all around us. And wilder, still, we might even get Latif to actually like a poem. (laughs) Good luck. This, by the way, is the performance of Emily Dickinson's Bloom, by musician Joan as Policewoman. woman uh-huh.
1: Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank.
0: WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com.
4: Radiolab is supported by TurboTax. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side-hustled your way to concert tickets, or sold Hollywood memorabilia, switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com slash guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live.
1: When you see actor Danielle Brooks on the red carpet at the Oscars,
0: she will be in full glamour and in grief.
5: I've been with Sophia for so long. And I just know, like, after the Oscars, that
4: chapter is really done. And that saddens me.
1: I'm Kai Wright. A star of The Color Purple honors the role that shaped her career. Next time on Notes from America. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Lulu. Latif. Lab. Okay, should we Zoom? All right. All right, all right, all right. So we started before time itself existed and then we zoomed forward through the formation of the earth, animals, flowers. Next stop. Stop three. We're zooming ahead a bunch more million years. Humans show up. They start stomping around and like making fires and inventing things and trying to perceive things. And um and we're gonna hear a poem about a discovery that was made in the somewhat recent times of nineteen seventy eight. Um but to get ourselves all warmed up to understand it, we're going to head back to the 1800s because you unearthed this hidden chain of scientists influencing each other over time that resulted in this discovery of hidden matter and then in the, in the writing of the poem itself. So the first person in this chain is?
5: Mariah Mitchell. Right. She was this amazing Quaker woman, young girl in, um, on the island of Nantucket. Huh. And she fell in love with astronomy and watching an annular eclipse. Then hmm. every night she would climb up the narrow wooden steps to the roof of their house hmm. in her long Quaker gown, hauling <laughs> the brass telescope and rain or shine or snow or freeze. She would, as they say, sweep. The heavens. So you know sweep. Going sweep. Go side by side with the telescope. That's what the term is. Go side by side across the night sky to cover basically the whole region of the visible sky just to see what's up. And one evening, October 1847, she slipped out of the family dinner, went up on the roof, and there was the comet. The king of Denmark had given this gold medal for whoever finds it. And she was only 29 years old.
1: Wait, how did they know it was there if they hadn't seen it? I mean, it was for
5: whoever finds a telescopic comet. Mm -hmm. And that established her, first of all, as America's great scientific celebrity, she would go on to sort of tour the world and ended up teaching... What essentially became the first class of astrophysicists in the world because she introduced a mathematically rigorous curriculum that even the men at Harvard didn't have. And now we call this astrophysics. And those were the first astrophysicists wow. in the world. It happened, they were all women.
4: Wow, I didn't know that part. Cool. Okay, so
5: then basically about 110
4: years after she is born. Another woman is born, a little girl,
5: a little girl in DC is reading a children's book about Mariah Mitchell. Mm -hmm. And this little girl is looking out her window into the night sky and suddenly thinks, oh my God, there are people who do this for a living and I could do this for a living as a girl. And that little girl grew up to be the great Vera Rubin, the astronomer Mm -hmm. who... Confirmed the existence of dark matter. That's what our poem is going to be about, dark matter. That is. Dark matter, trying to perceive
4: it or it being there. Um, But there's one more person in this string, the person who actually wrote the poem, who in her day job was a scientist. Uh, She was born in 1960. Who is that?
5: Her name was Rebecca Elson, and she was one of the first astronomers tasked with studying Hubble images, particularly an image of the Milky Way in order to study the dark matter halo surrounding it. And she was this incredible person who was only 29 when she received a terminal diagnosis with a very rare Mm -hmm. kind of blood cancer. And when she died, she left behind 56 scientific papers, which is an extraordinary number for a lifetime and this Mm. slender, splendid book of poems Mm. that has a title that to me is the meaning of life. I mean, that's what we're here for. It's titled A Responsibility to All.
4: A Responsibility to All or to Ah? Ah. 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 huh? Ah. Ah.
5: Ah. Yes.
4: All right. So we are going to hear one of the poems from this collection. It's called Let there always be light searching
5: for dark matter. Uh, And I guess before we do, can you explain dark matter real quick? Um, It is matter comprising the vast majority of the universe that Mm -hmm. interacts with gravity but doesn't interact with light. So it's stuff. It's stuff, but we can't see it. Now we have
4: this poem by Rebecca Elson, and who is going to read it for us?
5: We are going to hear the wonderful Patti Smith.
1: Wait, the Patti Smith or, or just a Patti Smith?
5: The Patti Smith.
1: Wow.
5: Okay, mm. here we go.
2: Let there always be light, searching for dark matter. For this, we go out dark nights. Searching for the dimmest stars, for signs of unseen things, to weigh us down, to stop the universe from rushing on and on into its own beyond till it exhausts itself and lies down cold, its last star going out. Whatever they turn out to be, Let there be swarms of them, enough for immortality, always a star where we can warm ourselves. Let there be enough to bring it back from its own edges, to bring us all so close that we ignite the bright spark of resurrection.
4: What do you guys hear in it? What does it make you think about?
1: There was that great book recently by Katie Mack, I think her name is, um, about the end of the universe. And she writes that two of the possible ways the universe will end is either like everything will keep expanding and expanding till everything like chills itself to death. Or the idea is it's like, is it going to expand at some point? And then at some point it's going to contract and then it's going to all go into this like Like big bang. and Back into a singularity kind of? Back into a singularity.
5: Well, that's what I was going to say. This is so great. It takes us back to this mystery of the big bang and it's mirror image. Like what's on the other side of everythingness, the other nothingness. Is there another somethingness?
1: Right, that's right.
5: But also, think about it. This is a dying woman writing this poem. Mm. I mean, even a hard materialist like me, like, you know, a lot of scientists who think, you know, we die and that's it. The atoms go back into the swirl of atoms and that's that. But somehow we live with this open question, but what's what's there? You know, mm-hmm. like, w- mm-hmm. what
1: happens? What actually yeah. happens? Yeah.
4: And it's like this wish, like it, I I find it, sad, but maybe this is my misread, but I find it like almost like a foolish wish. Like, Mm. how would there be warmth Mm. out of the darkness and the lack of energy based on her training? Isn't that
5: exactly not how it works? I hear that, but I think she's doing something else, which is, I think this is her playful way of saying this light we live in live with it's great it's enough Mm -hmm. appreciated while you're not dying because we are dying all the time we are little universes running out of fuel each of Mm -hmm. us and actually the bright star of resurrection is this right here right now the only one we have we're in it we're in it we are it
4: I know we're almost out of time, but we're going to sneak in one last stop. So zooming ahead another 10 years and a little bit after the discovery of dark matter, there is a shiny, brand new instrument poised to let us look deeper into space than we have ever seen. For our last poem, you chose one by the brilliant poet laureate Tracy K. Smith that is about the Hubble telescope. On which her
5: dad worked. Yeah, that's Mm. so cool. So he worked, like, building it, helping to make it? Yeah, he was an engineer on it. He was one of NASA's first Black engineers. That's so cool. She made a beautiful book called Life on Mars uh, that actually Mm. won her the Pulitzer Prize. And this poem we're going to hear is called My God, It's Full of Stars. My God, It's Full of Stars. Okay, here we go. When
0: my father worked on the Hubble telescope, he said... They operated like surgeons, scrubbed and sheathed in papery green, the room a clean cold and bright white. He'd read Larry Niven at home and drink scotch on the rocks, his eyes exhausted and pink. These were the Reagan years, when we lived with our finger on the button and struggled to view our enemies as children. My father spent whole seasons bowing before the oracle eye, hungry for what it would find. His face lit up whenever anyone asked, and his arms would rise as if he were weightless, perfectly at ease in the never-ending night of space. On the ground, we tied postcards to balloons for peace. Prince Charles married Lady Di. Rock Hudson died. We learned new words for things. The decade changed. The first few pictures came back blurred, and I felt ashamed for all the cheerful engineers my father and his tribe. The second time the optics jived. We saw to the edge of all there is. So brutal and alive it seemed to comprehend us back.
4: I I know we should wrap up, but Latif, do you have last um
1: Yeah, my last This is a very beautiful poem, and in a way, I think out of all of them, it's really like the most honest one, because I feel like so much of this, and so much of science in a way, uh, is like an exercise to know things that are not our scale. Like, it's like before we were born, or after we're dead, or too small, or too big, or too far away, or too, like, too, 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 too. Like, it's just like not in our scale, like a lot of these other poems were like, it's like, okay, let's like think about the world through a flower's perspective. But this is like very honestly from one human about another human who happens to be the human who helped make her. Um, And I don't know, there's just something very beautiful about this and human. All
4: right, friends, that'll do it. Happy New Year. Happy completion of the giant millions of miles lap to all.
1: Yeah, Happy New Year.
4: Biggest thanks to Maria Popova. If you want to go deeper on some of these poems, she recently got a bunch of them animated in such a thoughtful and stirring way. Just Google universe inverse.
1: This episode is produced by Sindhu Yanasambandam.
4: Special thanks to all of the poets, musicians, and performers. Tracy K. Smith, Marie Howe, Rebecca Elson, Joan as policewoman, Patti Smith, Gauthram Shrikashan, Zoe Keating, and Emily Dickinson. Hope you have a good one. Or if you don't, that you go and uh, write a poem about it.
2: Lab was created by Jad Abamrod and is edited by Soren Wheeler. Lulu Miller and Latif Nasser are our co-hosts. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Jeremy Bloom, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, Aketi Foster Keys, W. Harry Fortuna, David Gable, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Sindhu Nyanasanbandan, Matt Cutie, Annie McEwen, Alex Neeson, Sarah Kari, Anna Rascuet paz Sarah Sandback, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster, with help from Andrew Vignales. Our fact-checkers are Diane Kelly, Emily Krieger, and Natalie Middleton. Hi, my name is Teresa. I'm calling from Colchester in Essex, UK. Leadership support for Radiolab Science Programming is provided by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, Science Sandbox, the Sayman Foundation Initiative, and the John Templeton Foundation. Foundational support for Radiolab was provided by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation.